0: This morning we're starting a new series. We're going to be spending a considerable amount of time going through the gospel of Mark. And so we're going to start this morning here. Mark chapter 1. There are other places to start. Uh, Mark 1 verses 1 through 13. Uh, If you have a Bible you can you can turn there. Uh, But before we we get started with this, uh, let's pray. Uh, Let's pray that that God's word would be going forth, that his spirit would be working uh, in and among us in this time. Lord God, many of us are, are coming this morning uh, as, we, as we hear from you in this moment, perhaps with distractions, uh, perhaps with, um, uh, with other things that are on our minds, um, or perhaps even just coming here and, and curious about who you are and wanting to, to hear from, from, from you, or even just hear about you in this time. Um, many of us come also with our hearts... Hardened or uh, whatever else it is, but Father, we pray that you would soften us and allow us to listen to what you have this morning, uh, to hear not just words that are about Jesus, but to hear words uh, from Jesus here. Uh, we need that. Uh, it's our life, and would you raise us up from the dead once more to, uh, to live fully uh, in lives of confident faith in you? and in your promises which have all come to pass in Jesus. Uh, we beg that your spirit would be here, uh, bringing us to life, uh, blowing uh, over us here, uh, and renewing us. We pray this in Jesus' name, and for his sake. Amen. Let me read for us uh, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, of, uh, beginning in verse 1 to verses 13. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophet Isaiah, or Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. But he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out and he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Amen. We all have moments where what it is that we've expected and what we received are not the same. Sometimes that's for the worst. Uh, that's oftentimes what we think about where our minds first go. For instance, last week, well... I, for our kids, one of the things that, we, that we, we do for them, they love, is we take pineapple juice and we whip it. We froth it up there and then we put it on top of some other fruit juice for, for them to drink as a special drink. And so we were doing so last Sunday and we put this pineapple whip on top of what we thought was grape juice until they take a drink. They're like, oh, this is so bad. And it was, we took a drink, we're like, this is really bad. Because long story short, uh, there was some confusion throughout the day. And it turned out not to be grape juice, but leftover communion wine from last week. (laughs) And they were expecting something good. It looked really good. And they got that instead. But sometimes it's for the better, though. We've been pleasantly surprised when we receive something good that far exceeds the moderate expectations that we first had, right? It's like the classic hole-in-the-wall restaurant where it looks like nothing special on the outside, but then you go inside and it's just amazing food. You didn't expect it. And the question for us in those times there is, are we willing to accept reality? That might not cross our minds really, but it's still there. Are we willing to accept reality? Are we trying to convince ourselves that what we wanted just really isn't very good? Kind of like choking down that wine with the pineapple juice, gagging and saying, oh, it's delicious, when it's really not. But on the flip side, though, are we willing to expect that the reality is way better than what we expected in the first place? So both of those there, both those instances take humility. It takes us to admit that we were wrong about what it is that we thought that we wanted. But then when we can finally admit that our expectations and then what we receive, the reality there are far different, then we're in a much better place. We can reject it as not being satisfying and we can yearn for something better. Or we can appreciate it for what it is in a much better way than we would have in the first place. And the opening to the gospel of Mark opens in this way that challenges our expectations about the contents of what we're about to follow, namely about Jesus. Right away, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Okay, gospel is good news. But what is that gospel? What is that good news here? And who is this Jesus? Who are we expecting him to be? What do we anticipate him doing and how? Does it align with what Mark clearly states that this Jesus is the son of God? Do we have any preconceived notions about him? Like we can just fit him into our pockets and go about life and take him around as we please like it's no big deal. Or are we willing to hear from this book about Jesus once again and have him challenge our expectations? Maybe we've been off in what we've thought about him before. Maybe we've been asking different questions than actually who he is. Or maybe we've had too, of view, or too low of a view of who Jesus is and had low expectations, and maybe we need those actually blown out of the water. Maybe he's actually someone different and someone better than we expected. And the narrative in Mark here then begins with these masses of people from Jerusalem and Judea in the south of Palestine, flocking eastwards. They're going out into the wilderness and they're gathering on the banks of the Jordan River. Because there's John the Baptist. We see him preaching and baptizing. But why? What's he doing out there? Why is he doing that? Well, to to answer that question, you need to understand what's going on. Which is why we have this quotation here, this Old Testament quotations from in, uh, in verses 2 and 3. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his path straight. It's kind of, it, it serves in a way kind of like the first time that you've ever watched Star Wars. The action begins right away. You enter into this thrilling space battle here. But the very beginning of the movie, though, starts with that iconic screen crawl. You know, the text scrolling across the screen in that iconic golden yellow there, explaining that this is the ship with Princess Leia and the stolen Death Star plans. And now you understand, ah, this is what's going on. It's not just a space battle. This is why it's happening. But we pick up on Mark here and we learn plenty about what's going on. You You pick up here now from this quotation that John is out in the wilderness and he is telling everyone to get ready. And these opening verses here are like that screen crawl. They help us understand the significance of John and why he's out there preaching. Because these people, these Jewish people who are coming out there, they fully understand. They get what's going on. That's why they left out, that's why they left the the cities and droves to head out in the desert and listen. They knew their Old Testaments well. That was their Bible. And they knew these quotations that came from Isaiah 40, which was our Old Testament reading this morning. Comfort, comfort my people. And then also Malachi 3. Uh, They could figure out what was going on. They knew in these passages there that it was the Lord speaking to his people who were in deep need of comfort and hope. They had felt firsthand for many years the consequences of their sins, their repeated wrongdoings, their guilt, everything, uh, by, by being expelled into a foreign land. And then even as God brought them back then, it wasn't like things were before because they still weren't free people. They knew it was that their sin that had put them there. And they longed for the Lord to come down from the heavens. To rend open the heavens and to give them comfort and peace. To purify them from everything that had put them there. All their sins that had put them there in the first place. And these promises had been written to them 400 years prior. And that was the last thing that God had said to them. But they were still in the situation. But they were waiting in silence. But now, in this moment, John arrives preaching and they figure out what's going on they knew who he was they knew this is a prophet he preaches in the desert like a prophet he acts like a prophet he's even dressed like the prophet Elijah that's why we had that weird description of him in verse 6 of how he's dressed and everything God is speaking to us once again. He hasn't left us. He's come to rescue us. He's the one that God's told us about. He's the one who's going to prepare the way for, for us, for, the, for the, the coming Lord to come and to rescue us. Comfort is imminent. The great redemptive event of the chosen one of the Lord is about to bust forth into this world. And for as powerful and for as intimidating as John must have been, this wild man yelling out in the desert, moving people not only with the power of his voice, but moving people with the content of his message, the coming deliverer, they knew, they said here, was going to be even mightier. John wouldn't even be unworthy to tie his sandals, he says. And the baptism that he was doing for these people out in the wilderness there, would only portray what this coming Savior would do. He wasn't going to pour water on them, but he was going to pour out the Spirit upon them, drenching them in the Spirit, bringing them into this renewed and intimate relationship with God, as close as swimming, as the wa- swimming in the water, swimming in the Spirit. And this, the Spirit then pour out would be now this new era of renewal of rebirth, of new life springing forth in their hearts and in their lives and in the world all around them. There's The, the anticipation of these people was through the roof. Where is he? Who is he? He's going to come soon. Let's get ready. All right, these are incredible expectations. They were envisioning this grand coming of the Savior. The Lord is coming. This is about to be an earth-shattering moment. And how do they respond? Repentance. That's, the, that's John's message. And that's the, the call that they heeded. Repent and be baptized. Turn from your sins. See them for what they are. Put them aside. But come to God in humility and seeking his mercy. Because soon he's going to come and he's going to turn the world upside down. And then John would baptize them in the Jordan River. And just to clarify here, this baptism of what John's doing is different in meaning than what we as a church practice today. Jesus' call to baptize the nations is one of marking them out as, uh, as, as taking the sign of being his people, identifying them with the promise. And John's baptism which was one which mirrored ritual cleansing. It was done after, it was done after repentance as a symbol that they were washing themselves of the sins that they had turned away from. And if you have any doubt about that, you can just later turn to, to Acts 19, where Paul is, he draws a distinction between John's baptism, and the baptism of Jesus, and the baptism that we as a church practice still today. But let's not delve into that and miss the whole point of what's going on here. John clearly told these people from Jerusalem and Judea that the Lord was on his way. And the only way to properly prepare for something of this magnitude was to, to repent. That's the only way that anyone can possibly get ready to meet the Lord. Pastor Allen had a great illustration a few weeks back on his last Sunday here that when you move closer to the light, you see yourself in greater detail. And usually those details aren't the most flattering. Now the problem with that isn't with the light, the problem's with us. And coming into the presence of God and in his holiness, just like that light has this way of exposing us. We see ourselves in greater detail. Namely, our our sinfulness in places that we hadn't imagined it before. Or the depths of it in new ways. And we see the ugliness of it in new ways. And the problem isn't with God. The problem's not with his holiness. The problem's with us. And it drops us to our knees. It brings us to repentance. Repentance to recognize the sins are for what they're worth and how weak our excuses are for holding to them. And we come and we weep in mercy before God. And friends, if you don't have a view of God's holiness, then you won't see the necessity of repentance. In fact, whatever response that you have to entering into the presence of God really reveals your view of him. Do we really get what it means to come before the holy and almighty God? Coming with anything less than humility and acknowledging our need for his mercy in Jesus Christ crucified for our sins means that we don't have a right view of God. We have a deficient view of him, a lesser view. And that doesn't mean that there isn't love or joy when we come before him. Or it also doesn't mean that we come before him in abject terror. But we certainly, though, come cognizant that it is a privilege that has been given to us by his grace. And the response of these Jewish people at the river stretches into today. Our hope of renewal and salvation in the full display of God's power is coming soon to us with the return of Jesus. When he'll come and bring justice to the world and subdue evil and crush oppression. When he'll shatter the wicked and subdue evil. When he will liberate the slaves and renew the world in righteousness. But repentance isn't only for the lost though. It's not just for those who we would consider heathens or pagans. Repentance is for God's people too. We can't just look with glee at Jesus' justice being poured out on the sins of the nations without also turning our gaze towards ourselves. And acknowledging that sin still resides within us and how much we too deserve his wrath if it weren't for his grace. See, repentance isn't only for unbelievers. It's not just for non-churchgoers. Who was it that was coming to John to repent and confess their sins and to be baptized for the forgiveness of sins? It was Jewish people. It was these individuals from outwardly God's covenant community, people who were identified with being God's people. And yet we see them recognizing their need to repent of their sins. And the same thing holds for us as the church. God's people don't just turn their sins, turn from their sins one time or, well, I said the sinner's prayer one time and I'm good now. It's actually, it's, 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 it's an ongoing life of repentance, right? We don't just say, well, I repented once and I turned from my sins once and everything's great. No. Luther, Martin Luther in his 95 Theses, you know what the very first one was? Or actually still is because you can go find him on the internet, um, uh, But when our Lord, it says, he writes, when our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, said repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. The Christian life is one of continual repentance because we see how deep our sins go and every day we find new ways to fail and to just fall flat on our face yet again. And so these people we were expecting something big. They were expecting something earth-shattering. God's salvation coming down into the world and overturning everything. And they're waiting for a person. They're waiting for a Messiah, someone mightier than John, a deliverer sent by God, someone to be that Savior. Yeah. Who did they receive? What was the reality of the coming one to save them? Jesus of Nazareth of Galilee. By all appearances, a simple man from an unexpected place, without fanfare, but just coming in a very simple, unassuming way. I mean, other than verse 1, the introduction of Jesus highlights this extremely ordinary, unexceptional character. Uh, right, right away in, in verse 9, In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth and Galilee and was baptized he just uh, arrives in the scene in this matter-of-fact way. In fact, the only descriptors that John gives us or that Mark gives us of Jesus is of his hometown, Nazareth, a small, insignificant town, nearly forgotten in Galilee, a backwater corner of Palestine, far away from Jerusalem where you would normally expect someone important to come from or to arrive to. And as the excitement and fervor and anticipation of the Jews was at this renewed high, here comes seemingly insignificant Jesus. Someone who they didn't expect in the least. He didn't match up with what they had in mind when the Lord said he would come to deliver them. Where are the heavens being ripped apart and your deliverance coming down in a blaze of glory like we thought? It tasted as bitter as the wine my kids had when they expected something as sweet as grape juice. But the reality is, though, that this is who they needed. They needed their expectations crushed. Because if they would have gotten what they wanted, who they wanted, it would have been so much worse for them. Isn't it often the case that when we get something different uh, than we first expected, it often turns out better in, in, the, in hindsight? These people needed a deliverer who went beyond their expectations. And so do we. Just like them, we need a deliverer. that We need the same one from God who goes beyond our expectations and gives us a salvation that goes deeper than what we first thought that we needed. John had been preaching about this world-turning Messiah coming to save them. And here comes Jesus. And here he comes to be baptized. Now, wait a second. Wasn't he supposed to be the one that was doing the baptizing with the Spirit? And not just with water? Well, by getting into the waters and getting baptized here, he's assuming this posture that puts him beneath John. But the reality is that John was right. John wasn't worthy to untie the sandals of this humble man. The sky opens up and the voice of God the Father Thunders down and declares his love and pleasure in Jesus. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. He pronounces a blessing upon him. And then the Spirit of God breaks through the heavens and comes down upon him, empowering him specifically for this ministry that he's now about to undertake. And despite the humble exterior, this is who Jesus is. This is the reality. Fully God in deep relationship with the other members of the Trinity. If the people at the river, though, saw this, they would have been blown away. But here's the thing. According to Mark here, no one else saw or heard. Verse 10, And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open. And all of this happens. Jesus is the one that sees this. No one else does. He was the one who bore full witness to the event. He knows his true nature. He knows what's going on. But this is hidden from everyone else. But again, this is who they needed. They expected the Lord to bust into the world and to deliver them. And they were right about that. This is Jesus coming down to them to actually accomplish everything that God had promised to them. But it's hidden at first. Jesus is the Lord God coming in to do all this. But what they didn't get... The reality of Jesus was that he would come not in glory, but that he would come clothed in humble humanity. Humble enough that he would come under John, his forerunner, and even submit to him in baptism, even though he came to do something greater, even though he came to baptize with the Spirit. But how he would save, though, was pictured in his baptism. John's baptism was one of repentance. Well, Jesus didn't have any sins to repent of. What's going on? He hadn't done anything his whole life, or he hadn't had a sinful inclination to put aside. But when Jesus stepped into the water there, the same water where his people came to repent and to put aside their sins and have them symbolically washed away, when he got into that water, he identified with them. So much that he immersed himself in the sins that muddied the water. So that his blood on the cross then wouldn't just symbolize the washing away of their sins, but would actually accomplish it. You can think about it, if you've ever been been, uh, been dirty, maybe greasy, when, like sunscreen, and then you've gotten into a lake. Or a river, and you get in there, and what do you see? You see all of that like sheen afterwards, just kind of like around you. All of the sunscreen and all of that dirt that's been on you, it just kind of like hovers on top of the water. It's like the sins of those people as they went in there, as they were repenting of their sins and were baptized. They're being washed off them and they're into the river. But there is Jesus, though, wading into the filth, wading into the muck, wading symbolically into their sins to have them washed all over himself to paraphrase to paraphrase sinclair ferguson jesus was standing in the water that had been polluted by their sins and then he had them poured over his perfect being it was a symbol of how he would save by wading into our sins and being defiled by them as he took our place on the cross so that we might be made clean. Not by water are we made clean, but by the Holy Spirit which he pours out and pours into us. The baptized Savior was unexpected, but his baptism shows that this is who we need. But Something else unexpected happens. After this moment here where the Father speaks these beautiful words to Jesus, then he goes off into the wilderness In fact, it's the Spirit who came upon him and leads him to go out there. He goes from this high point here, though only known to himself, to this period now of excruciating trial as he goes out for 40 days in the wilderness, in the wasteland, to being tempted by Satan. And we're not told in, in Mark here what the nature of those temptations were, but from the other accounts of this here in Matthew and in Luke, we see that at their heart was to distrust the Father and to do things his own way. To take the easy route for power and glory and, and sustenance in the way that, see, that seemed humanly best. It was a temptation to reach out for cheap fame rather than toiling alone in his ministry with his divine nature hidden from everyone He could be the person more along the lines of that the Jews wanted and anticipated. And maybe he could be recognized a little bit more for who he was. And in a way, those 40 days that he spent here are the summary of his entire earthly ministry. It sets the tone for the next three years about what's about to take place in Mark. Serving and preaching against what they wanted and remaining steadfast in his mission. But even though he could have succumbed to their expectations and he could have taken a different and an easier path, he didn't. Because he knows, he knew what they, and he knew what we really need. Like his baptism, Jesus' temptation reveals how he would save. The focus here in Mark is less on the temptations themselves and more on one thing. It's a word that's repeated specifically twice in there. Wilderness. The wilderness. The wilderness for these people was a motif that represented curse. It was dry, hot, barren, hostile, lonely. It was a place you didn't want to be. And if you were there, it was for a specific reason. Think about Israel's time uh, in the, uh, in the, the wilderness for 40 years. It was because of their rejection of God's promise to enter the land that he had given to them. Or then Adam and Eve expelled eastward from Eden after their sin. They were sent out from the flourishing of the garden into the wilderness. See, the wilderness is a cursed place. It even had this strange mention of Jesus is with the wild animals. What's that about? Well, it adds to this association of curse and of hostility. These were the wild animals of a post-fall world where the peace of everything was broken. This is talking about a curse. Jesus would spend not only the 40 days, but his his entire ministry, living in a lonely life in a cursed world, a place that was cursed by human sin. And every day he felt the temptation, the constant temptation, to rise above his relative obscurity in the battle against Satan to topple his grip on the world. But even though it was a lonely place, He wasn't fully alone. He was sustained by God, as it says that the angels were ministering to him. And again, this cursed and lonely savior in the wilderness, again, wasn't what these people anticipated. But it was what these people needed. It's what we need. Because Jesus set aside his own glory and his own self-recognition. And he lived the experience of life under the curse. The same one that we do. The same curse of this fallen world where we experience brokenness. And where we have awful stuff happen to us. And where we see awfulness happening all the time. And darkness is in the world and we wonder what's going on. It's that curse. But Jesus came and lived in that curse. He did it for us. He did it for people like you and me to break us free from that curse. As Jesus hung on that cross, he he experienced the curse of sin in those hours there as the blanket of God's wrath was put upon him like a shroud. He experienced darkness of the curse so that we might be free from it, that you might be free from it in him. And to restore us out from the wilderness, to bring us back out from the wilderness. And to make us a people not associated with curse, but the people who are associated with peace and life, and love. See, aren't we glad that Jesus didn't fall into the expectation of being a Messiah that these people had? But as we answer that, though, the question also for us is, what do you expect with Jesus? Are there any expectations that you have about him that needs to be uh, altered a little bit? Or it may not square with who he really is. Or more poignantly, are we willing to take who he says he is and then have our wants and our assumptions about him to be moving closer in alignment with who he is? Maybe our assumptions about him are way off base. Or maybe they're too low compared to who he really is. Are you settling for a lesser Jesus than this one right here? That's an important question for you to to ask if you're trying to learn about him or if you've known about him your whole life. We need to take him at his own terms. If Jesus is this transcendent son of God in humanity, then our understanding of this person and his character and scope of his mission will blow us away. He didn't come to fulfill our own personal desires and to give us a life of ease. He never promised that he would change us in comfortable ways. Or that he would never stretch us or put deep demands on us. He rejected being a political figure. And today he still can't have a particular political party or a political movement pinned to his chest. He's not a social reformer. He's not an ethicist. He's not whatever other expectations that we might have and might want him to conform to. But who he is and the salvation that he gives is so much better, though, than we could possibly imagine. He is the Son of God who saves broken sinners and gives them life, who laid aside his eternal glory to humble himself, to live as us perfectly, and to die in our place on a cross, who exhibits ultimate grace and forgiveness to those who are wandering in darkness. Are you okay if he's someone different than you thought? Maybe our desires and our expectations need to be obliterated. Because unless we're willing to to take Jesus as he is, then we will inevitably be disappointed. And the tragedy is that if that's so, then we'll be disappointed by what we need the most. Let's pray. Lord God, it may be as we sit and listen to your word, as we read these these narratives about Jesus and we see a little bit bigger picture about who he is, a deeper picture, it might be that we need a clearer idea of who he is. Maybe our vision has been obscured by unbelief or by trying to remake him in our own image or our own expectations Lord this is for all of us alike for all of us who are sinners and saints we pray that you would enlarge and open our understandings and blow our expectations out of the water and that we would see who Jesus is more clearly and that we would learn to love him even if he doesn't fit quite with what we wanted him to be or who he thought he was before that he would actually become much richer much better than who we thought before And Lord God, he is coming soon, and we thank you for that, and we ask that you would help us to wait in steadfastness, but not only steadfast faith, but also with repentance, that we would continue to come over and over to you, holding to Jesus, Um, and that we would learn how to repent in better ways than we did before, in deeper ways, in new ways, as we see the, the little the pockets and corners of our hearts and lives where the, that sin darkness still resides. Would you shine your light there in those places so that we might repent better? And Lord, would we learn to repent more frequently as well? Give us that heart as we come to your table in only a few short minutes. In Jesus' name and for his sake, amen.